come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome listeners to episode 172 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recorded out of Columbus, Ohio. And in this episode here for you, I'm going to be doing my Women Appreciation number 8, as my two featured reviews are Humanoids from the Deep, this is from 1980, and I also got to watch Consecration. So, this doesn't make the greatest double feature, I guess, well, I mean... Humanoids from the Deep is has a woman director, and we also have some women in peril that are in the movie. And then for Consecration, we are following Jenna Malone as our main character. I guess I'm just celebrating women as being such a focal point in both of those. And I mean, actually, Humanoids also has a woman doctor in it, and I believe Jenna Malone also is a doctor in her movie. But I also have a ton of mini-reviews for you. I went to see at the Gateway Film Center, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. I watched Phantom of the Opera from 1943, Darkman 2, The Return of Durant, Ghostbusters Afterlife, Frightmare, the one from 1974. I also got to watch Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, and Carl the Butcher vs. Axe. So I'm not really sure if there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here, so what I will say then in closing for this intro is thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review here is going to be a rewatch of Prince of Darkness. This is from 1987. This was written and directed by John Carpenter, stars Donald Pleasance, Lisa Blout, and Jameson Parker. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, a group of graduate students and a scientist uncover an ancient canister in an abandoned church, but when they open the canister, they inadvertently unleash a strange liquid and an evil force on all of humanity. So for this one here, if you want to hear a little bit deeper of a mini-review, I'm going to direct you to episode 103, which was Halloween number 2. That had featured reviews of Lamb and Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, as this was a mini-review, as I was saying. So this is a movie that I was actually mad at myself for not having seen earlier. Do I think this is the best Carpenter film? No, not to me, but it does a lot of things at work. I love incorporating religious mythology with science to explain things. 
The acting isn't great, but it also isn't the focus. I like what they do with the filmmaking. It is well made, and it helps to build the atmosphere that was needed. This was a good movie to me, and I'd still put it in the upper echelon of John Carpenter films. And actually, part of the reason that I rewatched this movie was that the Gateway Film Center was showing the Apocalypse Trilogy on the big screen, and I got to catch this one, and then my next review actually will be another Carpenter film, but I kind of wanted to point that out here that I did get to check out. Prince of Darkness on the big screen, and my rating for this one is an 8 out of 10 after the second viewing. And as I was saying, my second mini review for you is going to be In the Mouth of Madness. This is from 1994, directed by John Carpenter, written by Michael DeLuca, stars Sam Neill, Jurgen Prochnow, and Julie Carmen. This is a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a... 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being an insurance investigator begins discovering that the impact a horror writer's books have on its fans is more than inspirational. So this was one of the few Carpenter horror films that I would come late to. I don't really remember this one growing up, but this would have been an era where I was really getting into horror. For whatever reason, I missed this one until I watched it as part of the People's Council on the podcast under the Sarah Summer Challenge series for the 1990s. I then, as I got to see this one recently uh, at the Gateway Film Center on 35mm. So this is one that I was quite upset that I hadn't seen before, as I was saying. This one ticks off a lot of things that I enjoy. I should also point out that it's loosely based from an H.P. Lovecraft story, which I believe is At the Mountains of Madness. It seems more like it's taking the name in elements, but it's its own entity. Now, what I like about this one is the investigation aspect. John, who is portrayed by Sam Neill, is the best at what he's doing, and he's already picking up clues immediately into what happened to this writer of Sutter Kane. This also questions if there's free will or not. I don't want to spoil this, and it can be difficult to talk about without doing that, but Sutter Kane is portrayed by Prochnow, and he's a writer. Aspects of this make you believe if John is doing any of this, or if he's just ascending into madness. I do love that Sutter is supposed to be Stephen King, even though the film says that Sutter is bigger than this entity. And Sutter is a horror writer who lives in New Hampshire, all very close with the initials as well. So the nightmare quality of this is great. It is interesting that we start with John being escorted into a padded cell. He doesn't think he's crazy, but we see a lot of evidence to the contrary. I started to question it as well because we go back to what led him to be there. They, when they get to Hobbs End, you don't know what's real and what's not. The characters are hallucinating and it could be a dream. It gets even worse when we see characters and things that are happening straight from Kane's newest book. Being that this is Lovecraftian, there's an Elder God's angle as well, which I love. I do have to say this is paced very well on top of that. I never got bored and I just wanted to just know more about what we were seeing. A lot of films that have this investigation aspect like this usually suck me in. This one has rewatchability. Having now given it a couple watches, I feel like that even more. I like how it ends and the implications of this new no novel from Sutter. The ending scene is amazing as well, as I finally know why that meme, you know, featuring Neil came from. It also makes sense as to why this completes Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. This film is helped by the acting as well. Neil is great. He has a smug arrogance about him early on. Then we see that slowly crumble as he descends into madness. I think he's great, and I believe what I'm seeing. Carmen is solid as well. What is interesting about her is that she's nervous from the beginning, but she's read all of Sutter's works as well. Now, she believes that, I mean, pretty early on, where John doesn't, and I like that we have this duality for a good portion. 
Now, Prochnow was solid in his role, as was David Warner, John Glover, Bernie Casey, and Charlton Heston. It's also funny to see Francis Bay in this film as well. I'd say the acting was good and rounded this out for what was needed. On the effects, which I had a smile on my face when I saw Greg Nicotero's name, as well as K&B. With that said, the practical effects here are great. I got a feel of another work from Carpenter with The Thing, which makes sense since same director. There are nightmarish creatures that are straight from Lovecraft, and they look so real. I'd say that the blood and gore that we get is solid. Cinematography is also good in building that atmosphere and helps that feel of being a nightmare. The last thing I'm going to go into would be the soundtrack. We get a Metallica-sounding song to kick us off, which I did enjoy. The rest of the score didn't stand out, which is surprising for a Carpenter film. It never takes me out of the scenes, but I can't really recall it when I was writing this you know, review, but it is solid and better than most. So in conclusion here, this is one that I ended up enjoying and glad that I could finally take it off my unseen films of Carpenter. I like the investigation aspect, and that is something I tend to do when I get interested in something. Another aspect is having a writer here who could be influencing his readers. The Lovecraftian angle is something I'm always a fan of. Pacing is good, never got bored, and it moves at a good clip. How the film ended was something that I'm down for. The acting is good, and the effects were great. Soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out for the most part, which is surprising. But I don't also have anything negative to say about it. I ended up really liking this one and would recommend giving it a viewing, especially for Carpenter or Lovecraft fans. So my rating here for In the Mouth of Madness is an 8.5 out of 10. And up next for you, I have Phantom of the Opera. This was from 1943. This was directed by Arthur Lubin, written by Eric Taylor and Samuel Hoffenstein. Stars Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, and Claude Rains. This is a drama horror music romance thriller film that is from the United States. Currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being... An acid-scarred composer rises from the Paris sewers to boost his favorite opera understudy's career. So, at the time that I first saw this, this was the fourth version I had saw. Since then, I've seen more and revisited this one as well. I've seen the play in person, and I'm giving this a rewatch as part of my Traverse to the Threes. I also didn't necessarily remember what this version had to offer as opposed to others. So, what I kind of found interesting is that this used the same set as the 1925 version, this one is just in color. It surprised me to see that this movie was presented this way. I believe the reason is that they were out there to capture the pageantry as well as to get a lot of the stage performances like on screen. It does feel like a bit of filler though if I'm going to be honest. Now where I'll go from there is that I didn't remember that Claude Rains was the Phantom here. I like that for this version he's a violinist. He sees that Christine Dubois who is portrayed by Foster has talent despite her knowing who he is. They have a deeper connection though. They're both from the same hometown. She knows a lullaby and that he does as well. It is specifically from their area. I did like the implications and the reveal here as well. I think there's actually even more to it that I picked up on this time around, but it was actually cut from the screenplay. Now what was a disappointment was that the horror and phantom elements are light. I don't mind the setup. We learn who... Antonoli Goran, who's portrayed by Eddie. There's also, as I said, Christine. There's Eric, who is Reigns. And then you have Bian Corali, who is portrayed by Jane Frara. And then we have Villanueva, portrayed by Frank Pugila. Now, it turns out that Enrique, who is the entity, from there, though, we learn that he's lurking. 
there are little things that are dropped that he's doing and the fear he is instilling, but that's all good. The movie just shifts quickly to the climax and the Phantom taking Christine. I just would have liked it a little bit more before that happened. I might be alone here, so I acknowledge that. Now, there are other variations of this classic story, and I want to start next then to the acting. Eddie and Barr are solid as our two searchers for Christine, and the four, well, the latter, I mean, is Raul Dabert. Now, there were things that end up that make sense there, you know, in the conclusion, but this one has these two males vying for attention, which can get a bit comedic by the end. That was fine as it added some levity. Not too much, though, either. Now, Foster is solid as Christine when it comes to the singing. They don't give her too much to work with outside of that. That is typical for Universal during this era. I did like Reigns as Eric and the Phantom. He does disappear for long stretches, though, as they focus on the love triangle. Other than that, Farrar and the rest of the cast round us out for what was needed. So the last thing to go into would be with the filmmaking. I thought the cinematography here was good. It was quite grand to give the full size and scope of this opera house, so I did enjoy that. I like what they do with the shadows and the layer of the Phantom. Not the best version for the latter, but still cool. The soundtrack also fit for what was needed. As I've said, we get a bit of the opera scenes, and it feels like a real one for sure. Now, the last thing would be the effects. They go light there, but I did like the mask and the look of the Phantom, though. In conclusion here, this is a solid take on the source material. I had seen a few variations on it coming in the first time and even more now. This one does well with capturing the opera feel. I also don't mind the love triangle between Garan, Christine, and Raul. I'm just not sure they needed to focus on it as much as they do and get more of the horror in the actual story as they fall by the wayside. Now, the acting is good across the board. This is a well-made movie overall. I'd recommend this one if you're out to see all of the versions of this novel or going through the Universal Classics run. My rating here for Phantom of the Opera from 1943 is a 6.5 out of 10. And then I also got to watch Dark Man 2, The Return of Durant. This is from 1995. It was directed by Bradford May and then it was written by Stephen McKay. That's kind of funny little rhyme there. But it also looks like that Robert Isleys and Lawrence Herzog did the story. This stars Larry Drake, Arnold Vosloo, and Kim Delaney. This is an action crime horror sci-fi thriller film that is from the United States and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being Darkman and Durant return. They hate each other as much as ever. This time Durant has plans to take over the city's drug trade using high-tech weaponry and Darkman must step in and try to stop Durant once and for all. So this movie that I'm not really sure if this is the one that popped up on the movie channels or if it was the next sequel. Regardless, I knew of this series, but it was one that I hadn't seen before. Now, I recently just watched the original, and I was curious to see where they would go from there. I was glad to see that Drake was returning as well, since he's a character actor that I'm a fan of. So where I want to start is that I found it funny that Vaslu, who plays Emotep from 1999's The Mummy, replaces Liam Neeson as Westlake and Darkman. I don't think it's a horrible recast, but it also isn't very good. I think that Vaslu just has a lack of emotion and not as great in the action sequences. This movie is working with a lower budget, so there's that as well. Now, with that out of the way, I do think this is a decent follow-up. We are getting our villain back of Durant. The hatred between Darkman and him is there. I'm glad that Drake came back to reprise this role. This movie plays out like the original one as well. I mean, it's almost like a mirror image. What happens to this new professor of David is like what happens to Westlake. 
Now, Darkman dons the face of people to mess with Durant's plans, and it all culminates in a, in a climactic battle. Since this is an action movie at heart that went straight to video, it knows what it's doing and doesn't try to do more than that. And I should also say that this David character is being portrayed by Jesse Collins. So let's not say that we don't have good elements here. There is an interesting social commentary. Durant has fronts that he uses to buy things legitimately. The public doesn't care, and that is pointed out by Jill to her producer. And then Jill would be Kim Delaney. Now, when she runs a report, it's a hit. Durant creates this new weapon and tries to sell it to who I believe is like a senator. He's actually a neo-Nazi, which seeing who how things have played out in real life even today... I wouldn't be shocked if this is more truer to form than we realize. This paints the villains as a bit over the top, but it might be more real than we know. And I mean, in an action movie like this, you kind of have to go over the top when you can. So where I'll go next would be the acting. I've already said what I need to about Vaslu and Drake. Delaney is good as this reporter who wants the truth and present it, but the media is holding that back. There's another commentary that I think is still relevant. That we also have Renee O'Connor who plays Lori Brinkman. That's the sister to David. I thought she was fine. I would also say that Collins was solid. I also like seeing Lawrence Dane here as Dr. Alfred Hathaway. Now we have some good henchmen like David Ferry, Rod Wilson. There is also Jack Landerjik and you know the like. Now the acting is a bit over the top, but it fits a movie that we were getting here. So the only other things to go into would be the filmmaking. I think this is shot well. There aren't any issues that I had with the cinematography. I thought the effects were also good. The look of Darkman goes a bit more generic, but not enough to ruin the movie. And I mean, this is probably just for time's sake. And I do believe we get a bit of computer effects. It was still early into doing that, so I didn't necessarily have issues there. Other than that, I'd say the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, this movie pales in comparison to the original. We don't get as much Sam Raimi or Rod Tappert. You know, like their kind of vibe and feel into it. But they did serve as executive producers, though. I'd say this is a decent sequel to an action movie with horror elements. This did go straight to video, so keep that in mind. Drake is good. Vosloo is an odd replacement to Liam Neeson, who is fine. Now, the rest of the cast fit for what was needed. This is just decently made. It just doesn't have that charm. And just, I would say, don't come in expecting too much either. So my rating here for Darkman 2, The Return of Durant, is going to be a 6 out of 10. And then Jamie and I also got to watch Ghostbusters Afterlife. This is directed by Jason Reitman. This came from 2021. This was written amongst Gil Keenan and Reitman. And then we also have, I know they're crediting Dan Aykroyd for the original idea, as well as Harold Ramis and then Ivan Reitman for, you know, working on that OG one. This stars Carrie Coon, Paul Rudd, and Finn Wolfhard. This is an adventure comedy fantasy sci-fi film that I also consider to be horror. I... It's very light on those elements, but just some of the stuff they're doing. This is also a United States and Canada co-production. This is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, when a single mom and her two kids arrive in a small town, they begin to discover their connection to the original Ghostbusters and the secret legacy of their grandfather left behind. So this is a movie that I was intrigued by. I heard about it and it seemed like there were issues getting it made. I did watch the requel that featured the all-woman cast. I thought it was fine, but it lacked heart. Seeing that Ivan Reitman's son of Jason was the co-writer and director intrigued me as it felt a bit more personal. So then for this one here is that I think this just works better than that requel. The heart is here without going too far over the top. 
There are little aspects that gave me nostalgia while also doing its own thing. I do appreciate that. I also like the correlating elements to the first and the sequel as well. The only thing that could make this better is if they did something to incorporate that other movie. Because this one is really referencing the original two. I get that that one was panned and many ignored it, but it's still there and I personally think that it should be acknowledged. So that out of the way, let me get to a bit deeper into these elements. The first would be continuing with the story. I'm not going to go into spoilers, but what I will say is that Gozer, who in this one is portrayed by Emma Portner and then voiced by Shorin Agdashlu, we get other elements that went with her as well, that being Gozer. What got me though was that we have Ivan Shandor, and this one portrayed by J.K. Simmons. I did have a problem here though. There is a structure in the mountain that looked ancient. There weren't civilizations like this in the United States during that period. I can be swayed if you're saying that a certain character built it, much like they did in New York City, but I'll leave that here though. Now where I want to go next would be the new Ghostbusters that we get. Now Phoebe, who is portrayed by McKenna Grace, is the new brain, which would be like Egon in the OG group. Now there's also Trevor, who is Wolfhard, and then there's Podcast, who is portrayed by Logan Kim which I guess would be our Peter and Ray. We're just kind of missing a Winston, but we do have Gruberson, who is portrayed by Rudd, and then Lucky to fill that spot, which I would, that is Celeste O'Connor. There are things that happen that I won't spoil, but I thought that despite this group being mostly kids, something happened to the climax that made my heart warm. There is heart here as well as a honor the past on Harold Ramis. Now, I don't think there's much more I need to go into for the story, so let me go over to the acting. I thought that Coon was good as the mom. As a new parent, I know that life can be hard, so I can't blame her for being as angry as she is at her absent father. Rudd brings humor, which I appreciate. Wolfhard is fine, but takes a bit of a backseat role here. Grace is good as our new lead, though. I like Kim as her friend. Now, we have O'Connor, who is also fine. I did like cameos by Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Ernie Hudson, Annie Potts, Sigourney Weaver, and Simmons. The acting is just good across the board. Now, all that's left out here would be the filmmaking. Now, for the cinematography, that's solid. I think that it goes epic, which is a good move when we're moving this from the city to the country. Now, there's solid action sequences, and those just look great. This version does use quite a bit of CGI. This is the time as well. I mean, it does lose some char charm for not being practical. The budget had money, so the effects look good, so I will at least say that. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack was good. I like bringing back the theme and even songs from the original movie. So then in conclusion here, this is a movie that I thought lived up to what I wanted. We get good heart while also being a movie that can be enjoyed on its own. The acting is solid across the board. This was well made, which I can appreciate. If Reitman decides to continue this line on, I'd be there for it. If this is the last movie they do, I think it's a good send off to that original crew. And they made an interesting flick here. So my rating for Ghostbusters Afterlife is an 8 out of 10. And I also checked out Frightmare. This is from 1974, directed by Pete Walker. This was written by David McGillivray. This stars Rupert Davies, Sheila Keith, and Deborah Fairfax. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, After escaping death, sentence for her hideous crimes, a seemingly rehabilitated woman settles in an isolated farmhouse with her husband, only to ache once more for blood and a crash course in surgery. Is she indeed back to her old self? So this is a movie that I'm not entirely sure when I first heard about it. I did know of the title, which I've always thought was kind of cool. 
it wasn't until podcast that it popped up for me. What is interesting is that there's another movie from the 1980s with the same title, but currently I'm not sure if they share a story or just, you know, that name. So where I want to start would be that this is an odd little film. Reflecting on it, I do want to know what the base of the story came from. It's got some interesting elements. The thought process this gives off is that Dorothy is a cannibal. Now she is portrayed by Keith. And then we have Ed loves her so much that he goes off to a mental hospital to be with her and he is portrayed by Davies. Now that they're out, he does want to keep her on the straight and narrow, but also will protect her. This has got some good heart, but the problem though is that they abandon their children. There is a reveal that I'm not going to give. I think it's a wild looking back that they went away like they did, leaving Jackie and Debbie without parents. Now Jackie is portrayed by Fairfax and then Debbie is portrayed by Kim Butcher. That's just, like I said, wild. I get that Ed loves his wife that much but being a new parent i couldn't imagine abandoning my children in their defense debbie wasn't born until after they were away and she was placed in an orphanage where jackie was sent away to live with family i just want to point out on how horrible abandoning these children is to me so the last thing i want to go into with the story would be delving into these tarot cards and the cannibalism knowing a bit about the history of cinema in the uk and censorship this makes me almost feel like these two elements are being correlated the first person killed is their for a reading this is also how dorothy lures her victims i'm reading that this is a pagan beliefs as are partially why dorothy is the cannibal that she is i do like something that could that does happen later in the movie that makes sense in an odd way there are implications there that i could argue now where i'm gonna go next would be the acting davies is solid as the husband i've said that he has good heart for how he feels about dorothy and he's willing to you know go away with her Keith is interesting as our villain. She goes brutal with kills, and that was something interesting. Again, without necessarily looking into things, I was wondering if this movie struggled to get distribution with the use of power tools, at least in the UK. So Fairfax is good as our lead with Paul Greenwood, who is Graham Heller, solid as her counterpart. What is interesting here is that he works in the medical field and dealing with the mind. He helps to explain things to the audience. Now, Butcher is also good, especially where her character ends up. I'd also say the rest of the cast were onto the south for what was needed. All that's left to go into would be with the filmmaking. The cinematography is good. It is shot well. The effects are solid. I wasn't expecting to get as much blood as we get. We don't necessarily see the kills, but this is more like the after effects. That makes it almost feel like an early slasher film, to be honest. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion here, I think this is doing some good things. It is odd to have a proto-slasher like this around the same time as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just being from the UK. The story that it's exploring has some interesting ideas. I don't know if it does well in fleshing them out or like everything out enough. The acting is solid. This is a well-made movie. I enjoyed my time here, but it's also, you know, kind of struggled to keep my interest. I still enjoyed my time, though. I'd recommend this oddity if you're into cinema from this era for at least a watch. So my rating here for Frightmare is going to be a 7 out of 10, and this is the one from 1974. And I also watched Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. I actually got to see this in the theater. This is from here in 2023. This is written and directed by Reese Frake Waterfield. And they're also giving credit here to A.A. Milne for the characters from the book. This stars Maria Taylor, Craig David Dowsett, and Chris Cordell. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 4.3 on IMDb and a 1.6 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being after Christopher Robin, who in this is portrayed by Nikolai Leon, abandons them for college, Pooh and Piglet embark on a bloody rampage as they search for a new source of food. 
So this is a movie that when I first heard about made me laugh. The closer we got to it coming out, I was intrigued to check it out. When it came to the Gateway Film Center, I made it a point to see it on the big screen, and this is just wild to be honest. So there isn't much to the story here. I chatted with a buddy of mine after the movie ended, and we both agreed. This is taking a backwoods slasher and taking out the normal type of killer. You'd get to replace it with Pooh and Piglet, and they are portrayed by Dowsett and Cordell. We see newspaper headlines for the credits that give you a bit of information about this duo, but it's never explained. I don't necessarily know if that's a bad thing. I personally don't know if they're just a couple of insane people wearing masks or if they're actually supposed to be like mutant hybrids. Regardless, this movie knows what it's doing and leaning into it. The kills are what we're here for. They even make most of our group women and they're actually kind of unlikable or they're not necessarily given much personality. We don't connect with them or kind of care what happens. The only one that you could argue that would be Maria, who is portrayed by Taylor. I believe she is dealing with the stalker. I think that's who she is. And I give credit here to the effect. The blood and gore that we get is good. There's quite a bit of that, and I wasn't expecting it. They do brutal kills, which had my theater cheering, and I should include that here, that it was a full house. And I know I had a hard transition there, but like this is really focusing on the kills, and that's the big deal. I do have some negatives though and it comes with the acting. Taylor is fine. My issues with her though I feel like are writing. They include this backstory but I don't necessarily know if it goes anywhere so I'm not really sure why it's in this. The rest of her friend group is underdeveloped. I did know that there was one who was addicted to Instagram but I don't remember her name though. The dialogue isn't good so that doesn't help. I will credit Dowsett and Cordell as they have good size for these two killers. They don't have much personality due to the masks. I already said Leon B and Christopher Robin. Now he has a new wife in this and she is named Paula Coys. She was fine. And they all kind of fall in the same trappings as their co-star if I'm going to be honest. The acting holds us back a bit unfortunately. So all it's left to go into would be with the filmmaking. I think that the cinematography here is good. We get solid shots that I can't appreciate. Knowing where to focus the character to hide the seams is, of the effects is good. I also like the setting being as far out and isolated as it is. Another strong aspect would be the soundtrack. It fits the atmosphere and it sets it and I was impressed. So in conclusion, this is an odd movie that I didn't necessarily think would work. It's absurd, but they play it straight and it oddly works as a backwoods slasher with having these odd hybrid killers. The acting isn't good, but that's not the focus. It's all about the effects. The rest of the filmmaking I thought was good around it with the special credit to the soundtrack. Don't come in expecting much. This is a fun, shut-off-your-brain movie and is there for the slasher fans, in my opinion. That's who I would recommend seeing this. So my rating, actually, for Winnie the Pooh, Blood, and Honey was a 6 out of 10. And my last mini-review is going to be Carl the Butcher vs. Axe. This is from 2010. This was... Written and directed by Timo Rose and Andreas Schnass. And then they actually both also star in this with Magdalena Kali. This is an action comedy horror film that is a co-production, actually just from Germany. This is sitting on a 3.4 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being. In a war-torn post-apocalyptic future, Carl the Butcher faces off against a new ultra-violent serial killer dubbed Axe. So this was the final movie that falls in the violent shit series. My buddy Derek was excited for me to watch this one and I was intrigued to see where they would go. Since Carl the Butcher, who was portrayed by Schnass, was killed at the end of the third one, other than that I came into this one blind. I should also point out Axe is portrayed by Rose. So there isn't much of the story here and it's showcasing practical effects that they're using. Those are good, I will say that. I give credit to them immediately. 
I did notice that this uses some CGI. It mostly is for blood spray, so that could be hit or miss for me. What is interesting is I'm not entirely sure if it was fully needed. I digress on that point, though. What I will say is that this movie knows what it's doing and leans into it. We have a large cast of characters to the point where it was hard to keep them straight. What is interesting, though, is that they mostly get killed immediately after getting introduced. And I'm guessing some are musicians who are using their real names as well. They are mostly what I like to call cannon fodder as they can show off the different deaths for these killers. What it did make it fun, though, is almost video game like as well. I'm not sure if there's more to say here, so I'll go over the acting. Our two stars are solid as their respective killers. It looks like they're both making similar type movies in Germany and came together to do this one. Their size fits for the imposing size that adds another layer of fun to their characters. Callie is solid as Vendetta. I'd even say that the rest of the group is fine. No one stands out, but their acting, you know, it's not good, but it works for the confines what they needed here. It fits the budget they're working with. All that I can think of next to go to would be filmmaking. The cinematography is solid. They don't do anything too out of the ordinary. There is CGI to help make this world look like it's a post-apocalyptic one for establishing shots. The rest are just like woods or empty places, so that fits. It also works that we don't necessarily need to show the outside world around them after it's set up outside of just like these different little set pieces. There is a lot of characters for a world like this, so that works. Oh, and then I'd say the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this is one that won't be for everybody. I had fun with this movie. This is another brutal splatter film. I would say that this one's tamer than the previous ones. There is a bit of nudity. The practical effects are good. They go over the top, but I came to expect that. I would say that the rest of the filmmaking is fine. This, like I said, this is a tough movie to recommend. If you just shut your brain off and go with it, I thought this was a wild ride. I would say that this is the best made in the series as well. So my rating here for Carl the Butcher vs. Axe is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. Oh, the alternate title here would be Violent Shit 4.0. So I don't have anything else here for mini reviews, so let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. They're coming. Humanoids from the deep. A tidal wave of rampaging creatures surges from the dark and violent sea to conquer the Earth. Maybe intelligent enough to perceive man as a competitor. Why the girls? It's my theory that these creatures are driven to mate with man now in order to further develop their incredible evolution. It's enough to scare the hell out of me. Soon the world will awake to a terrifying riptide of humanoids from the deep. We think we know where these things come from, but we have no idea how many there are. The Earth plunges into a battle for the survival of the fittest, where man is the endangered species and woman the ultimate prize. you hide anytime you stop they will find you doug mcclure and Terkel, vic morrow humanoids from the deep
And for my first featured review is going to be Humanoids from the Deep. This is from 1980. This was directed by Barbara Peters, and then it looks like Jimmy T. Murakami did some uncredited work. Comes from the story written by Frank Arnold and Martin B. Cohen, and then it looks like the screenplay was written by William Martin. This stars Doug McClure and Turkle and Vic Morrow. And this also features Cindy Weintraub, Anthony Pena, Denise Gallick, Lynn Thiel, Megan King, Breck Costin, Hoke Howell, Don Maxwell, David Strassman, Greg Travis, Linda Shane, Lisa Glazer, Bruce Monette, Sean Erler, and Frank Arnold. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being, humanoid sea creatures start killing a fishing town's residents and raping their women. It's up to the townsfolk and visiting biologists to fight back to fend them off. So this is a movie that I knew about from a young age. My dad liked it, but he wouldn't let me watch it from what I remember. There's quite a bit of nudity, so that could be it. And it's one that I heard about on podcasts, but it was a blind spot. I decided to give this a watch due to a female director to support for women appreciation on my podcast. And before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes, and I'll actually start with our director of Peters. She directed five total works. This is the only one that I saw, and that was in horror. Now, to the writer, Martin wrote two movies. Much of the same, only one that I've seen, and this is the only one in genre. Then shifting to the cast. First, there is McClure. He has 49 pictures. This is the only one that I've seen. He did three in genre, though. First was Satan's Triangle from 1975, which is interesting that I just recently watched the movie Triangle. Then they did this, and the last was The House Where Evil Dwells. Then to his co-star of Turkle, she has 16. I've seen three. Out of genre, I've seen Deja Vu, and then she did three in horror. The first was this, then there was Deep Space, which I had not seen. Her last one was The Fear, which I have. That is that, I actually brought it up recently, that odd one that Wes Craven did some producing on. Then to Morrow. He has 43 films. I've seen four. Ones that aren't in horror are Bad News Bears and The Blackboard Jungle. Seven are in horror. I have not seen The California Kid, Curse of the Black Widow, The Evictors, or The Last Shark. I did see his last movie, though, that he was in of the Twilight Zone movie. He was also included in Death Scenes 2, which is a take on Faces of Death from what happened in his last movie, which is kind of in poor taste, I will say that. So of this movie, we start off with getting the lay of the land and an underwater scene. Through this, we see it's a coastal town that is held up by the fishing industry. We learn that salmon are almost gone. A large company wants to come in and open a cannery. There is a split in the town of the people that are for it and those that are against it. There's an interesting opening scene to set the stage here where there's something in the water. A series of unfortunate events lead to a boat exploding with a father, his son, and his crew dying. Another is a bunch of dogs are killed on the dock and the surrounding area. Everyone's but the local Native American of Johnny Eagle who is portrayed by Pena. So where I want to go from there is our lead is Jim Hill, portrayed by McClure. He is married to Carol, who is Weintraub. Now they have a son. He gets along with Johnny, and he can handle the local jerk of Hank Slattery, portrayed by Morrow. Now he tries to keep the peace, even though he's not the, like, sheriff. Upcoming in the town is the Salmon Festival. Canco is the company trying to put in the cannery. They also have a plan that involves Dr. Susan Drake, who's Turkle, to get the salmon population back up. So there's a dangerous side effect, though. 
Her experiments might have created a monster that is lurking in the waters. It has rapidly created something that sees man as its only threat. It also sees a chance to breed more of their population with the local women, as the synopsis said. So that's going to leave my recap introduction to the movie. What I want to start with is the pacing here. At the heart, it's a monster movie. We are getting these creatures that are attacking. I like that this opening sequence that leads to deaths, then from there we get them at a good clip and, you know, some good pacing here to kind of give us some more story and to kind of push things along. There are people who suspect something is happening and then they're taken out before the rest of the town can be alerted. This also has a runtime of 80 minutes, which is perfect and it does not stay its welcome. Now, with that set up, I want to go to the creature itself. This is hinting that something is up with this company and Dr. Susan Drake. She is doing experiments that lead to these humanoid beings being created. She says something to Jim about it. There is an explanation later in the movie. Now, the commentary here is that the company is trying to cover it up. They want to make money, but they don't want to deal with the consequences. I like this subtle jab that can... Capitalism. It isn't in your face or over the top, but it's still effective. I like this as a grounded explanation as to why these monsters are here and that humanity is to blame. There's also an interesting idea that they are vying to be an apex predator and attacking humans. The chance to populate their species as well. So there's not anything I really need to say to cover the story any more than what I have, as this is pretty straightforward, so I'll take this over to the filmmaking. I want to start with the effects. I love seeing that these creatures are practical. Now, Roger Corman is an executive producer here, and he was behind this, so I'm not shocked there. They don't look perfect, but they're still quite great. Now, the cinematography also helps there. Now, we do hide them as well as we can only kind of really see them later in the movie, which I do appreciate. They do keep them to things like the um, shadows and whatnot. I think the cinematography is also helping there. We do hide them as much as we can, and then I think that this is shot well overall. Other than that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So before I do some trivia, all that's left to go into would be the acting. McClure is good as our lead. I love that he's a good man and wants to do the right thing. He disagrees with Johnny, but his stance on the cannery, but he still respects him. They can't be said for everybody, though. Turkle is good as our doctor who knows more than we realize at first. Morrow and his group of goons are fine. They are typical for a small town, which I appreciate. Other than that, I thought that Vintrub and the rest of the cast was solid. Special props to all the women that get nude. There are a lot of them, and it does feel a bit sleazy at times. Now, I'm also, it's interesting to see a young Greg Travis as Mike Michaels, who is the radio announcer, just because I've kind of seen him in some lower-budget movies here later in his career and didn't really realize that he had started this long ago. Now, the big thing here is that Barbara Peters did not want to add some of these young sex scenes because she was a feminist who hated it. Now, Corman went with a second director to get some of this new footage and everything, Many years later, Peters ended up watching this on cable and admitted that it ended up being a fun little movie that she did. Didn't necessarily like that some of these scenes were put in, I'm assuming, but... Now, the humanoids were originally supposed to be played by stuntmen, but they thought it was goofy looking and refused to wear it, so additional actors had to be hired. There's only three costumes, so they kind of had to be creative what they were doing there. Turkle thought this was an intelligent, suspenseful science fiction story with a basis in fact and no sex, so I guess was the original idea. But then, of course, Corman went in and added some of that stuff. The makeup crew had to actually paint one of the actress's lips because they were getting blue from being cold. I guess the original title here was Beneath the Darkness. I know when I started it up, it said Monster, and I think it might have had it in, like, smaller text, but not really sure about that. James Horner composed the score in only 14 days. There was a sequel that was supposed to be Humanoids from the Deep 2, The Next Generation, where the creatures learned to talk. Never materialized, though. 
Um, Linda, who is Miss Salmon, this was Linda Shane. This is her first role and the first and only on-screen nude scene. She said later that she was incredibly nervous about her bikini top being pulled off as there was a bunch of guys in the crew. And she was glad she didn't play a victim like the other actresses. It was kind of callous there. She loved she got attacked and killed one of the monsters, even though her boobs were bouncing around when she did it. She joked the guys in the audience were probably so fixated on the bouncing they had no idea that she was fighting a monster. I knew she was. I didn't necessarily know that she killed it. Much of the Salmon Festival carnival footage was reused in the movie's 1996 TV remake. Joe Dante was making Piranha around the same, or actually a couple years earlier, and he turned down directing. This is remade for television with the sex and violence toned down. And I don't really think there's anything else that I kind of want to go into for trivia. So in conclusion, this is a better move than I was expecting. We get a solid creature feature that has an interesting eco-horror message underneath. There is sleaze with what the creatures do to women and the amount of nudity. We do get charm with the latter, though. The acting is solid across the board. This is a well-made with the effects being a bright spot there. I can't fully recommend this to everybody, but if you like eco-horror or creature features, I'd give this one a watch. So my rating here for this movie is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section. Don't really think I need to do anything there. So what I will do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. I'm afraid I've got some bad news. <laughs> I'm here from the Vatican because of your brother's death. I've come to bring transparency to this tragedy. Before he fell into darkness, he was much loved by everyone. Fell into darkness. You saw my brother kill himself. The eyes of God are on us all. This was the ultimate confessional. The nuns, they stand here and for every sin committed, they take a step back. The more steps they took, they fell to their death. God got them. We live a disciplined life here. Contained, cleansed, purified. Peekaboo, where are my clothes? Mother says we must first remove the filth from them. You're a woman of science. What is it you seek? My brother was badly hurt before he fell. I think you discovered something that he was afraid of. When I have dark thoughts, I think I might be a really bad person. They're all lying. What is it that you think you know? One God. And, 
And for my second featured review is going to be Consecration. This is from 2023. This was directed by Christopher Smith, who also co-wrote this with Laurie Cook. Stars Jenna Malone, Danny Houston, and Ian Peary. While also featuring Janet Sussman, Idili Fisher, Theron Ferguson, Stefan Sended, Victoria Donovan, Alexandra Lewis, Angela White, Charlotte Palmer, David Boyle, Marilyn O'Brien, Jolad Abasola, Kit Ratsukin, Michael Brophy, Emma Hickson, and Daisy Allen. And if I did mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize. But this is a horror thriller film that is a co-production between the United Kingdom and the United States. Currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd. Our synopsis is, after the alleged suicide of her priest brother, Grace, travels to the remote Scottish convent where he fell to his death. Distrusting the church's account, she uncovers murder, sacrilege, and disturbing truth about herself. So this is a movie that I'd already had an interesting story with to kind of start off with. When I heard it was coming out, I was stoked because I love religious-based horror movies. The Gateway Film Center was getting this one, and I made it a point to see it there. The power went out, though, so I had to leave. I then went to another theater the following week, and during this, they had a power surge which stopped the movie for a few minutes. I did get to see it through, though, and you know make it a featured review here, of course. So before I get into the movie itself, let me start with some featured notes, and I'll begin with our director of Smith. He has a total of 11. I've seen three. Six of his are horror. The first one that I had seen is actually his first in genre, which was Creep from 2004. He also did Severance, which is on my list to check out. He did Triangle, which I recently watched for Where to Begin With over on the T-Puts Collective. Then he did Black Death, another one on my list, and The Banishing before doing this one. As a writer, he has seven, four in horror. I've seen three. The only one that I have in is Severance, as he wrote Creep, Triangle, and this. His co-writer of Cook, this is her feature film debut. Then to the cast versus Malone. I've seen 12 of her 70 works. Out of genre are Sucker Punch, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and the Hunger Games sequels. She was also in Donnie Darko, that I also consider to be fringe to be horror. Now, in genre, though, she has six, and I've seen three. First was The Ruins, Neon Demon in this. I haven't seen Angelica, Antebellum, or Swallowed at this time. Now, with her is Houston. He has 79 total films. I've seen 17. Ones not in horror are Wonder Woman, Children of Men, Game Night, and The Aviator. In horror, he has three, and I've seen all of them. There is 30 Days of Night, 2015's Frankenstein, and now this. Then lastly, I'll look at Ferguson. He has two movies. I've only ever seen this one. He does have one other one in horror, which is from 2018, called Matriarch. So then, now for this movie here, we start with Grace and getting to know her as she's portrayed by Malone. She is an eye doctor in the city, and she has this patient that has an aggressive issue that needs to be taken care of immediately. Interspliced with this is a nun walking along the road. They pull a gun out and aim it at Grace. Now, she goes home for the evening where she gets devastating news. Her brother was part of a murder-suicide at a convent in Scotland, just as the synopsis said. She goes up there to see the body and decides to figure out what happened to him. This brings her to meet Father Romero, portrayed by Houston, who has taken over there. He seems to be hiding things when talking to Grace. Now, there's also Mother Superior, portrayed by Sussman, and the other nuns. Now, her brother was Michael, portrayed by Sendif. Now, edited throughout are scenes from his and Grace's childhood. 
It wasn't easy as they were adopted. Their father was someone with mental illness and it caused him to harm his children. It is for this reason now that Grace has turned her back on God. Now, the mystery also involves this convent. The original location was on a cliff above the water. The nuns and priests believed that there was a relic hidden within. It was supposed to have fallen into the water after an earthquake. Now, Michael seems to have found it though. The convent also has a ritual where you confess sins and you take a step back. If you have too many, then God is supposed to catch you as you go over the edge. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that on paper, I should love this movie. We have an isolated convent. A murder-suicide happened with Grace wanting to find the truth. There are secrets here. Mother Superior, her nuns, and even Father Romero know what happened. He is having them work with the DCI Harris, portrayed by Ferguson, who is leading the investigation. They aren't giving everything, though. There is also this mystery of the convent and what is holding inside. There are all these things in different movies that have pulled my attention. For whatever reason, though, I have issues here. Now, with that set up, I did want to say that I don't hate this. My opening thoughts seem to say that I did. Grace trying to figure out what happened to her brother is great. I also like their past playing back into everything. I'm not sure if what I was watching or it was still in the theater if things clicked, but I know for sure that while compiling my thoughts, it comes together. There's also sequences from farther in the past. I'm guessing around the time of the Crusades. These also factor back into the explanation. What is interesting here is the relic draws an interesting parallel to Jesus and the corruption of the church. Now, I do need to go to a negative here, though. I've been trying to figure out what this didn't work and why. It seems that it might be with the editing. We get the main story we are following with Grace and her investigation. That's good. But I think my problem is that we don't get enough figured out. It then correlates to things from the past. Again, the pieces are there. The issue with the puzzle is that it seemed to be jammed together and not finessed to fit better. That also includes even farther in the past. It could work, it just doesn't come together just right for me. Now what I will say is that it isn't the fault of the acting. Malone is great as our lead. If anything, I believe she's a bit too abrasive at times. I'm not going to knock it though. If my fifth sibling was part of something like this and I wasn't given the truth, I'd be rough to talk to as well. Houston is great. I love that he has a smug arrogance about him where he can smooth talk to you. You don't fully trust him or what he's saying, though. That fits the role. Ian Peary is solid as Grace's friend of Vincent. I also like Susman as Mother Superior. I want to like her, but there's just something about her and the convent that you can't. Other than that, I'd say that Fisher, Lewis, and the rest of the nuns are good. Sended, Ferguson, and the rest of the cast also round this out for what was needed. The only other things to go into would be the filmmaking. First would be the effects. There is CGI here that I noticed. At the reveal of what happens, I'm on board. It is supposed to be a demon, as these nuns say, that is influencing things around them. Most of the time, we can't see it. There are moments where we catch a glimpse until the reveal. I love what they did there and the implications with it. It looks to be off, though, when we see things play out initially. It isn't a cheat, so I do like that. The cinematography is good. We get interesting angles and the framing gets interesting, especially with the use of mirrors. Now, I did appreciate that. The only other thing would be the soundtrack, which was fine. It fit for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this is one that I was excited for and thought that it could be a contender for my year-end top 10 list. I know that this is partially a me issue, so I need to revisit this one. For whatever reason, though, this one didn't work or come together like I wanted. We get a good cast. The performances work. I love the elements of religion, mythology, and how it all comes together there. It just feels clunky, though. The pieces don't mesh well. I wanted to like this one more than I did. 
I still recommend giving it a viewing as this is a solid movie regardless. So my rating here for Consecration is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section here, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. Journey with a Cinephile. I would like to welcome you back, and then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr., on Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for my next episode is actually going to be my Black Appreciation number 8, as I'm going to have featured reviews of the older movie is Death by Temptation. It was, I knew a black exploitation type movie that I had never seen before. I saw it was playing on Shudder, so I decided to give that one a watch. And I'm going to pair it up with There's Something Wrong with the Children. Now this one doesn't work as well, but we do have one of the main characters there is a black woman. So I kind of figure that would make it at least work well enough here. And this also kind of makes for an interesting little double feature about entities that are kind of older than humanity and being a little bit supernatural and everything like that. So those will be the two featured reviews. I will also be watching an older Traverse of the Threes movie that is going to be, I believe, uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I've actually already watched it. I just drawn a blank on which one comes first in the title and everything like that. I also will have some more mini reviews of some other horror films that I'm watching. Don't know if there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say in closing then is whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and do it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. I want to thank you so much for listening and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 